Section 16 of Life of Sir Walter Raleigh by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 9. Last Days of Elizabeth. Part 2. In a few days, Essex was brought to trial for high treason before a body of twenty-five peers. One of his chief associates, the Earl of Southampton, Shakespeare's patron and friend, was tried with him. Both pleaded not guilty. Essex tried to defend himself by accusing others. He asserted that Raleigh and Cobham had meant to murder him in his own house. He said of Cecil that he favoured the claim of the Spanish Infanta to the English crown. With greater justice he accused Francis Bacon, who appeared against him, as Queen's counsel, of perfidy and base ingratitude. Francis Bacon was the son of Sir Nicholas Bacon, who had been Elizabeth's Lord Keeper till 1579, and had been amongst the greatest of the statesmen who gathered round her throne. His death had called back his son Francis from Paris, where he was completing his education in the house of the English ambassador Sir Amias Pollitt. Francis had wished to devote himself to literature and politics, but he had no private means, and the death of his father left him without a friend in the government from whom he could hope for advancement. It is true that Lord Burley was his uncle, for Burley and Sir Nicholas Bacon had each married one of the learned daughters of Sir Anthony Cook. But Burley was anxious for the advancement of his own son Robert, who was just the same age as Francis and looked with jealousy on his nephew, in whom he could not fail to see far greater genius than in his own son. At last Francis found a friend and patron in the Earl of Essex. Essex never did anything by halves, and he proved a very warm friend. Bacon had devoted himself to the study of the law. When the office of Attorney General fell vacant, Essex did his utmost to procure it for Bacon. When that was filled up, he tried to get him the office of Solicitor General. When he failed in this, too, he tried to make up for it by personal kindness. But no remembrance of the past prevented Bacon from agreeing to appear as counsel for the prosecution at Essex's trial. He had no wish to injure Essex, but he had a strong fear of injuring his own prospects. He did not want to ally his fortunes with those of the fallen favorite, and not content with abstaining from appearing as his friend, he did his utmost to blacken his character. In his speech at Essex's trial he employed all his wit and talent to set the Earl's conduct in the worst light possible. Essex was condemned on the same principle which had led to the conviction of the Duke of Norfolk and Mary Queen of Scots, the principle that every attempt at rebellion must be looked upon as directed against the life of the ruling sovereign. Elizabeth went through a hard struggle before she could make up her mind to sign his death warrant but she who had allowed the execution of Mary Queen of Scots could not now go against the laws of England to save the life of the man she loved best. Before he was brought to execution, Essex was led, by the influence of religion, to confess his guilt, and he made known a correspondence in which he had been engaged with the King of Scots. From this it appeared that he had managed to gain James to his side by affirming that Cecil and others were preparing to maintain the Spanish claim to the succession. This probably greatly aggravated Elizabeth's anger against him, for though she must have known that James the Sixth of Scotland would be her successor, she would never acknowledge him as such, 
and in general hated any allusion to the succession. Essex was executed on the 25th February, 1601. The life of the Earl of Southampton was spared, but he was kept a prisoner in the Tower for the rest of Elizabeth's reign. Sir Christopher Blunt and three other followers of Essex were also executed. At Blunt's execution, Raleigh was present in his capacity as captain of the guard. Blunt had been one of Raleigh's bitterest enemies, and now before he laid his head on the block he asked, Is Sir Walter Raleigh here? And when Raleigh came forward he said, Sir Walter Raleigh, I thank God that you are present. I had an infinite desire to speak with you to ask your forgiveness ere I died, both for the wrong done to you and for my particular ill intent toward you. I beseech you, forgive me. Raleigh answered, I most willingly forgive you, and I beseech God to forgive you and to give you his divine comfort. Raleigh's chief adversaries at court were gone, but he did not on that account gain a more important position in state affairs. In September 1600, he had been made governor of Jersey, and he set out at once to visit the island. Lady Raleigh wrote to Cecil about his journey. He was two days and two nights on the sea with contrary winds, notwithstanding he went from Weymouth with so fair wind and weather, as little Watt and myself brought him aboard the ship. He writeth to me he never saw a pleasanter island, but protesteth unfeignedly it is not in value the very third part that was reported. Raleigh did not look upon his governorship as a sinecure, and did all he could to increase the prosperity of Jersey. He busied himself with securing the fortifications of the island. He founded a trade between Jersey and Newfoundland, and did his utmost to remove the abuses and oppressions of its government. In 1601 Raleigh went with the Queen on progress. He seems to have left her and come back to London to receive the French ambassador, the Duke of Buron, who had been sent over to consult with the Queen about new aggressions on the part of the Spaniards. From London, Raleigh writes to Cecil, I am glad I came hither, for I never saw so great a person so neglected. He proceeded to do his utmost for the entertainment of the French envoy. We have carried them to Westminster to see the monuments, and this Monday we entertained them at the Bear Garden, which they had great pleasure to see. As soon as horses could be provided, the Duke of Buron was taken to the Vine, a country house near Basing in Hampshire, where the Queen was staying. Here the Queen caused him to be magnificently entertained. Plate and hangings were brought from Hampton Court to make the house fit for his reception. Elizabeth had hoped that a personal interview between herself and Henry IV of France at Dover might have been arranged. Henry sent instead his most trusted minister, the Duke of Sully, to discuss with Elizabeth the means to be taken against Spain and the House of Austria generally. In 1601, Elizabeth opened her last parliament. The people had not forgiven her the death of her favorite Essex, and as she passed through the streets on her way to the house, she was not greeted with the same enthusiastic shouts as of old. The world seemed very gloomy to her, for she had never got over the shock of her favorite's conspiracy and death. The tone of the Parliament which now met must have helped to show her that a new state of things was beginning which she was not able to meet. She could not understand the result of her own work. She had by her caution gained for her people the means of living in freedom, and now they wished to use the freedom which her rule had developed. But her proud Tudor spirit found it next to impossible to bow before the will of Parliament. 
Till now, by strict economy, she had managed to be almost independent of parliamentary grants, and so had asserted her superiority over Parliament. Now, large supplies were needed for the Irish wars, and the knowledge that the Crown required these supplies gave Parliament more courage in speaking out than it had shown before in this reign. Raleigh had been in Parliament since 1585. He had soon begun to take an active part in the business of the House, and had made himself very useful on committees. When the question of the subsidies came on, he spoke strongly on the necessity of granting liberally, seeing that Spanish forces were actually in Ireland, and that the sale of Her Majesty's own jewels, the great loans her subjects have lent her yet unpaid, the continual selling of her lands and decaying of her revenues, the sparing even out of her own purse and her own apparel for our own sakes will not serve. All were agreed that the subsidy must be granted, but there was some little difference as to how it was to be levied. Cecil talked loudly of the willingness which every one should show to contribute. Neither pots nor pans nor dish nor spoon should be spared when danger is at our elbows. He would have the King of Spain know how willing we are to sell all in defense of God's religion, our prince, and our country. Bacon concluded a speech with Dolcis Tractus Pariugo. It is easy to draw with equal yoke. Therefore the poor, as well as the rich, ought not to be exempted. Raleigh showed his far-sightedness and his sense of justice by his answer. I like it not that the Spaniards, our enemies, should know of our selling our pots and pans to pay subsidies. Well may you call it policy, as an honorable person alleged, but I am sure it argues poverty in the state. And for the motion that was last made, Dolcis Tractus Pariugo, call you this Pariugum, equal yoke, when a poor man pays as much as a rich, and peradventure his estate is no better than it is set at, or but little better, while our estates are three or four pounds in the Queen's books, and it is not the hundredth part of our wealth. Therefore it is neither dolkis nor par. Unfortunately, the sum of money wanted was so large that it had to be levied from both rich and poor. When the question of the subsidy was settled, the House proceeded on the 20th November to make a complaint against monopolies. These monopolies were the means by which the Queen rewarded her favorites and were heavy burdens upon the people. The growing boldness of Parliament is shown by its daring to raise its voice against them. One member spoke of a country that groaned under the burden of monstrous and unconscionable substitutes to monopolitans of starch, tin, fish, cloth, oil, vinegar, salt, and what not. Raleigh rose to answer as regarded tin and stated that since he had held the office of Lord Warden of the Stanneries, the wages of the workmen in the tin mines had increased from two shillings a week to four shillings. There is no poor that will work there but may and have that wages. But he ended by saying, Yet, if all others may be repealed, I will give my consent as freely to the cancelling of this as any member of this House. The advisers of the Crown met the complaints by saying that the granting of monopolies was a branch of the prerogative. But the House was determined. A petition on the subject was sent to the Queen, who saw the wisdom of giving way. She promised to revoke all illegal patents, and her concession was received by the House with extravagant rejoicings. Her promise, however, does not seem to have been strictly carried out. On several occasions during this session, Raleigh spoke out strongly for the freedom of the individual. 
an act was brought in to compel men to sow a certain proportion of hemp on their land, and Raleigh, speaking on this point, said, For my part I do not like this constraining of man to manure or use his ground at our wills, but rather let every man use his ground to that which it is most fit for, and therein use his own discretion. The bill was thrown out, and later on it was proposed to repeal the bill of tillage, made in a time of dearth, according to which every man was obliged to plough the third part of his land. Raleigh spoke in favour of the repeal. Many poor men, he said, are not able to find seed to sow so much ground as they are bound to plough, which they must do, or incur the penalty of the law. Besides, all nations abound with corn, and therefore I think the best course is to set it at liberty and leave every man free, which is the desire of a true Englishman. These statements sound to us like truisms, but they were by no means looked upon as such in those days of monopolies, protection, and over-busy legislation on all points. Raleigh himself by no means fully adopted the principles of free trade. In this same Parliament, he spoke in favour of restraining the export of ordnance, saying, I am sure heretofore one ship of Her Majesty's was able to beat ten Spaniards, but now by reason of our own ordnance we are hardly matched one by one. I say there is nothing does so much threaten the conquest of this kingdom as the transportation of ordnance. The same man who spoke so strongly for repeal of the statute of tillage was in favour of a bill forbidding the export of ordnance. Raleigh also spoke with much force on a bill for the more diligent resort to church on Sundays. He opposed the bill, and showed how it must remain a dead letter, unless an enormous amount of work were thrown on the church wardens, who would have to appear at the assizes to give information to the grand jury. He calculated that about 480 persons would have to appear at each assize on this subject. What great multitudes this will bring together, he exclaimed, what quarrelling and danger may happen, besides giving authority to a mean churchwarden, how prejudicial this may be. The bill was finally thrown out by one vote. Whilst Parliament was debating the question of the subsidy, a new deputy, Lord Mountjoy, was subduing the rebels in Ireland. He defeated the joint forces of the Spaniards and Irish, and compelled Tyrone to submit. Tyrone's final submission came in immediately after Elizabeth's death. She had been failing in mind and body ever since the execution of Essex. To the last, she persisted in taking her usual exercises of hunting and riding, and when in March 1603 she grew really ill, she refused to take any sustenance or go to bed. Her kinsman, Robert Carey, went to visit her about this time, and says that he found her sitting low upon her cushions. She took me by the hand and wrung it hard and said, no, Robin, I am not well. And in her discourse she fetched not so few as forty or fifty great sighs. I was grieved to see her in this plight, for in all my lifetime I never knew her fetch a sigh, but when the Queen of Scots was beheaded. On the 23rd of March she grew speechless, and on Thursday morning her spirit passed away, after she had been supposed to indicate by signs that she wished James the Sixth of Scotland to succeed her. So died the great queen. She had done her work well and nobly, though she could not understand or enter into its results. Whatever may be said of her personal failings, it is at least clear that she had guided England wisely through troublous times. How she had strengthened the people's character was to be seen in ways she little dreamt of 
in the struggle for freedom against Charles I. End of section 16.